When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time for another episode of Gibbo's Corner, and this is a very special one. I'm Andrew Musgrove, joined, as you might have guessed, by John Gibson. And on Gibbo's Corner, this time around, we're going to go down memory lane. So this is Gibbo's Corner, a trip down World Cup memory lane. Now, if you follow John's career here at Chronicle Live, the Evening Chronicle, you will know that John... Uh, back in the olden days, no disrespect, John, used to cover World <laughs> Cups. So and not just Newcastle, and you used to go around the world yeah. to follow England. And I want to get, we're going to go down and talk about your memories. But before we do that, I just want you to sum up as a journalist and then as a fan what the World Cup means to you. And then we'll dive into your memories. Ab- absolutely. I mean, I was lucky enough to cover all the World Cups and all the Olympic Games, which meant every two years... I had a huge tournament because World Cup, two years later, Olympic Games, two years later, the World Cup. Um, and I was just a cheeky boy. I was, I'd left the Chronicle to go and work in Fleet Street. Um, and that was just because that, to me, was the height of, you know, doctors went to Harley Street, journalists went to Fleet Street. And I had no intention of coming back. I suddenly got a phone call saying, um, Gibbo, Newcastle United job's up. Would you like to come back and cover it? And I thought, dear God, that's the job above all others that a Newcastle United fan I wanted. But I thought, Shyburn's getting out, be cheeky. So I said, yeah, I'll come back, but I would want to cover, if I'm giving up Fleet Street, I want to cover World Cup finals and Olympic Games as well. Now I thought they would say, sorry, forget it, goodbye. And I would have said, just testing course I'll come back and cover Newcastle United. Unbelievably they said yes you can cover the World Cups and the Olympic Games as well uh, and so I did from then on in. So I was about to say us regional journalists we certainly don't get those trips anymore. No no. But by the sounds of it the regional journalists back then maybe didn't get those trips either it was you no, just being a little bit cheeky. It was it was me pretending well if you want somebody out of Fleet Street you, you, there's, it comes at a cost and that was the cost and um I mean, I've got to be truthful, and it sounds like you're patting yourself on the back, but if you make a right town halls of the first trip you have away, the first one was at home, 66, but if you make a, you're not going to go to the next one because it costs thousands of pounds, thousands of pounds even then. But yes, and they were extra special memories for me. And uh, the funny thing is, really, Andrew, is that it was the summer of 66 when I was approached to come back and follow Newcastle United, and they said, well, your first job will be the World Cup this year, which was in England, of course. And then into Newcastle United's my first season with Newcastle United. Well, of course, 1966, England won the World Cup. And in 1969, three years later, Newcastle won a European trophy. I thought, this is, what a life this is. This is showboating this. I mean, I'll spend all of my career watching my two teams win loads of things. Neither has won a solitary single thing since 66 and 69. I hope you're not the case, John. Well, I'm, yeah, well I've, I've, I've gone on record recently and somebody's produced a T-shirt amongst fans as a bit of fun. Uh, I was asked 
and give a spontaneous answer what I think about Newcastle now and how wonderful they're doing. And I said, well, after all the years since 1969 of reporting on failure, I've, uh, I've cancelled dying because I want to be around and watch Newcastle win a lot of trophies under the new regime. So there's a T-shirt out for punters now which says, I've cancelled dying, uh, with a mugshot of me at the top. So... Um, no, I, w I like to turn it the other way and say I've got the treasured memories of being the only working journalist, still working, who saw a win in 66 and 69. Before we get on to 66, just talk to us about covering the World Cup as opposed to covering Newcastle United or club football. Is there a difference isn't it, in terms of the, you know, the feeling for one, but also what you actually do? Yeah, they, 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 it's basically very different. Um it's still the passion. Uh, my, my number one passion is always Newcastle United, not England. That's my number two passion. Uh, but Newcastle United, number one. But I would cover, the, in between the four years of the World Cup, I would cover games that were qualifiers, etc., etc., which is going down to London to watch England play. And we always had somebody involved. If you think of the entertaining, the entertainers we would have as many as six Newcastle players in the squad, not in the team, but in the squad. I mean, it was phenomenal. Um, and that was basically the same batting pad coverage uh, that is with Newcastle United. But World Cup finals won't, because you go and you live out there with them for X number of weeks. Um, you travel with the, the club, because unlike the Olympic Games, where you just go to a major city, and that's the Olympic Games, Barcelona or uh, wherever and that's the Olympic Games and you're stuck there for five weeks with the World Cup you're moving from city to city to city to city as teams progress and I always went on and covered the whole tournament not just England till England got knocked out but right through to the World Cup finals and um, it's intense because you're working seven days a week for four weeks and you can't suddenly say well I'll work five, and then it's me two days off. When the Chronicle spent thousands of pounds to send you, they say, no, Pally, you work every day that God sends, because, and rightly so. Um, so the, the, the handling of it was very different. The, the joy for me is when we had Newcastle United-type people, like when Shearer was captain of England, uh, and you had those sort of people in the England squad. Wonderful. So there must have been an appetite from the punters on Tyneside there for was. the work you did. Do you think it's it, it's changed now? Yeah. Because obviously, as I mentioned there, if you're a regional journalist, the opportunity to go to, to the World Cup abroad isn't really there. No. And, you know, the, the, the Nationals send out their regional writers, but we're talking about, you know, the Chronicle and what, yes. and what have you. Do you think that's, you know, do you think the, the is, audience has changed? There is a big, a big change in attitude, Andrew. Um, I think, Early on, from 66 onwards, with England, England were the second team, you know, for every, for everybody. Everybody was a fan of a club, and then they had England, whether you're Manchester United or Liverpool or Newcastle or whatever. Uh, I think because of the, um, the explosion of European football at club level for the Champions League, etc., uh, etc., et that has reduced... Uh, some of the love and the passion for the World Cup. I think the passion in the World Cup comes if your country hits the later stages. 
but under normal circumstances, certainly in the four years in between World Cups, there's not the passion that there was then because the Champions League and everything else is taken over. And I guess as well the fact that you can watch every single match on television these days probably also yeah, plays into yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, I think that does come into it. Um, mind you, I was working uh, a bar in town the other night with a old Newcastle United player before England kicked off against Iran and uh, that was pretty lively. Uh, and there wasn't imagine. anybody in the bar that was over about 32 age-wise, uh, draped in Union Jacks, shouting the odds because of Trippier, of course, etc., etc. That was pretty lively. That uh, So there is some feeling on the big occasion, but mm. not season upon season upon season. And, I mean, we'll get on to 66 now. Before we do, I just want to ask you, do you think what, what we've talked about there, you know, the, the difference how regional journalists used to go out and cover the World Cup European Championships and now they don't get to do so that often or at all. Um, do you think the coverage suffers for that in terms of what the local audience want to read about? Do they want to read about Bruno Gomeresh pulling on that Brazil top? Whereas the national focus isn't really on it on on Bruno because they've got a massive audience. They've got the whole country to, oh, to work Absolutely for. right. Um, I think the edge that a regional paper got from sending one of their reporters, i.e. me for the Chronicle, was that I would cover, in exactly the same way as the national reporters, I would cover England on block and cover what Jeff Hurst was doing or whatever, whatever. But I would, I would do four or five stories every night. I, I didn't just do one. I did four or five every night. But I always covered the local angle. I would always cover Shearer. I covered Kieran Dyer. I would, and when people put in, which is what you do, you put in your um, wish for who you'd like to interview. Everybody would want to interview Harry Kane today or um, Bobby Charlton or Bobby Moore in the old days. I would also put I want to interview, and I would ask for a Newcastle United player. So you got the local angle, which the Press Association, which fed in the stories to the regional papers wouldn't cover. Mm. They weren't interested, the Press Association, in covering the Leicester City player that's just in the squad or the Newcastle United player. We could do that and did that. And if you had a relationship with those players, they would go out their way. I remember Shearer time and again going out his way in a press conference having caught my eye to sort of say, come round the back at the end of the press conference and give me a, a little while on a one-to-one. Um, and they were invaluable. So that, But I mean, I remember going off talking about the Olympic Games. I remember in, being in um, in the year 2000 in Sydney for the Olympics when Jonathan Edwards of Gated Areas won it long last his gold medal in the, the hop-step and jump. And uh, everybody was after him. We, we rushed down. He's coming off the track, draped in the Union Jack, the whole world's press were there clamouring for him and he spotted the little Geordie in the front and he come across and did a one-on-one -on -one with me and held everybody else back and we got that story as an exclusive. So it can be tough, but it can be good, but it's fun. Mm. Uh, and and it's the memories that are fun. Exactly, and, and no more fun than the one in 1966. That's where we're going to start just before we do. We're going to give a little wave to the camera because... We are recording this on, on YouTube, so there Hi you go. Guys. 
Lovely to see you again. I remember when we did that a little while back. Uh, it used to have a Gibbo's Corner, didn't we? Everything but used to be recorded, and I remember recording lots of things for Gibbo's Corner and Dad's Pub as well, yeah. if I remember right. The, in the lane head and writing, yes. So yeah. we may get back to that in the future, but this is where we're recording now in Chronicle Towers. So if you're watching this on YouTube and you like what you see, let us know in the comments. Hit subscribe, and if there's enough audience, we'll... We look to record more of the episodes between me and John, even okay. maybe the Newcastle weekly ones, if we can get round to it, because um, mm. we do enjoy those. And if you're listening on the podcast channel, thank you as always. Just hit the subscribe and like button and leave us a rating and review as well. Let's get on to some memories then, John. Yeah. 1966. 66, I'd just come back, as I said, from Fleet Street and Newcastle season hadn't started. And the Chronicle said to me, right, there was a group in the northeast. One of the, the, the group sections was in the northeast. They said, follow the northeast section, and the minute that is over, link up with England for the rest of the tournament. So uh, I covered the northeast section, which was it. Interesting. It was Italy, Chile, Russia, and North Korea, was the, the four sides that were playing in the northeast, which is what is unbelievable is that St. James's Park wasn't one of the grounds. It was deemed not good enough to host a World Cup. Now, can you... And to rub salt in Geordie wounds, Sunderland and Middlesbrough were the two grounds that were taken to, to host the World Cup in this area. I mean, this looked like an aircraft hangar, the, the, the main stand. It was wooden. Um, the press box was on the top. If there had been a fire, we would have just been Guy Fawkes up there. It was it was horrendous times, and it wasn't deemed good enough. So Newcastle United, who later on, of course, have taken part in European matches, etc., but they missed out on being one of the hosts in 1966. And very quickly through the, the, the group that was up here, the biggest... They talk about shock results, and we've had some now... Mm. When you get Japan winning and you get Saudi Arabia winning, you get Germany losing and um, uh, Argentina losing. Good gracious. The biggest shock then was North Korea beat Italy. North Korea, who never... South Korea, yes, but not North Korea. North Korea beat Italy 1-0 at Aysen Park and I was there. Uh, and there wasn't anybody that was a household name. They all just played in their own country. They didn't go and play for Bayern Munich or anything of that nature. They won one nil. They were the surprise package. So were workhorses, um, and they went all all the way through. They qualified from the group and only went out to Portugal five three. After leading Portugal three nil, they lost five three. And why did they lose? Because one of the world's greatest ever players, Eusebio, just scored a bundle. And he won the golden boot for the whole of the tournament, even though England won it. The golden boot was won by Eusebio. And they were 3-0 up against Portugal and lost 5-3. The other, just quickly, other things from here, Russia, were um, the complex was in Durham, where they, their, their centre was in Durham. They had the legendary Lev Yashin in goal who you'd have to go in the record books to find out about him, a little bit before your time, Andrew. But he is, he dressed all in black. He's a bit like Johnny Cash, only he didn't sing. He, but he's the man in black. And um, he is the only goalkeeper ever to win the Ballon d'Or, the player there. There's only one goalkeeper in the history 
Messi and Ronaldo recently and everybody else upwards and sideways. He's the only goalkeeper ever to win the Ballon d'Or. And that year, Russia, with him in goal, made the semi-finals of the World Cup, which is the farthest they've ever got in the World Cup. The interesting thing, just to finish off, the, the Russians, uh, they saw that the flag, the Italian had a bigger flag than his, up the flagpole to see this is where they say. So they, they had a special one made when they saw how big the Italians were to be bigger than the Italian one. They stuck it up on the flagpole. It was nicked one night during the night in Durham and was never seen again. And in 2017, as recently as that, a punter walked into a newspaper office down on Teesside with the flag apologised for nicking it all those years ago and f said, I think I ought to return it now. And it was the flag that was taken in 1966. Uh, he'd had it hidden in his house for over 50 years. Amazing. Amazing, isn't it? That uh, North Korea result, How? where does that rank in terms of upsets for you since then up to the present day? I mean, everyone's talking about Saudi Arabia and, and, and their victory uh, earlier in the week against Argentina as one of the biggest upsets in, in World Cup history. Does that rank yep. below or above this North Korea I result? think that this one ranks above because North Korea, I mean, some players now with Saudi, some players now with Japan who have just beaten Germany play in the big leagues in Europe. Not that country isn't big, but they, they are mm. and they play in the big leagues. North Korea, none of their players have been out of North Korea. Never mind play for any of the big countries. There's, there's only old so-and-so, I'm showing my age now, and I don't want to, Andrew, but there's a, to me, there's only one equivalent um, shock, World Cup shock, to the North Korea beating Italy. Remember Italy with the powerhouse then. Serie A, it wasn't the Premier League or, or the Bundesliga. Serie A was the top, the top league in the world. Um, and the one result was in the 50s, I think it was 1950, England lost to America, and not the America of today, where the soccer sort of, these were a bunch of university students, etc., etc., that played for America. Unfortunately, we were involved in that, the Royal We being Newcastle United, because Jackie Milburn's World Cup it was, and uh, England lost 1-0, I think in Brazil, I wasn't there, it was even before my time. There's not much before my time, but uh, I remember talking to Jackie about it. And they lost one nil at the USA when the USA were a bunch of uh, ragtag and bobtails. Uh, North Korea, apart from that. Well, fingers crossed by the time we uh, put this out, England haven't had the similar fate against the United States, who they obviously play <laughs> yes, on, of on course, Friday. The 50s fate. Um, what else happened in 1966? Anything else other than that North Korea? I can't think of anything else. Well, um, I, I, well, I remember the two lads from Ashington keep telling me that there was something happened in 1966 every time I saw them. Uh, the Charlton brothers, Bobby and Jack. Um, it was amazing because you then I then started following England and they'd start with a note, note against Uruguay or something. It didn't start in any way like they were going to win the World Cup, albeit at home. And that side, with Alf Ramsey as the manager, was known as the Wingless Wonders because he it devised a way of playing where England played without wingers. They played narrow without wingers, which was unheard of in the 50s and the early 60s. 
you played with wingers from Stanley Matthews to Tom Finney to Bobby Mitchell at Newcastle United, etc., etc. Great sides had great wingers. Uh, England played without wingers, the wingless wonders that team was called. Um, and significant things happened uh, with Alf. Uh, they played Argentina en route to the final. And Alf, who was, he'd taken elocution lessons, you know, and uh, he was a East End boy. He was a real cockney with a cockney slang, but he talked all posh, like the BBC, because he'd taken lessons in how to learn, and he was talking this elegant, and he looked like an English gent, the way he dressed and everything. And uh, it was so staggering to hear him come out and call the... Um, the Argentinians animals because of the the way they played. They'd had the captain Ratten sent off, etc., uh, etc. Et and there was a very famous picture. George Corney's fullback wanted to swap shirts with one Argentinian players at the end of the game, and Alf Ramsey's run on the pitch. The guy, the England guy's got his shirt off and he's busy handing it to the other guy who's got his hand out, the Argentinian guy. And Alf runs on and grabs the shirt and pulls it away from the uh, Argentinians. Uh, you can't have it. The animals, and he went in the press conference and called them animals, which was quite incredible. I mean, the big story about it was, at the time, the England great goal scorer was Jimmy Greaves. He was the Harry Kane of his day. He was the superstar who went to Serie A. He set world records at, uh, for goals at Spurs and Chelsea. And Supermac went as a kid and watched him play just to learn how to play centre-forward. Just stood at one Spurs game, whole game, and just watched Greaves. That's how good Jimmy Greaves was. And uh, he got injured halfway through the tournament, got fit again, but to put Jeff Hurst in, Ramsey, in place of him, and it crippled Jimmy Greaves to the day he died. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't get back in the side. And Jeff Hurst become the all-time hero because he scored a hat-trick in the final and got knighted as a consequence. And he didn't even start the World Cup in the side. He was just a backup guy. He was just a backup guy. But Jimmy Greaves got injured. The equivalent of Harry Kane getting injured, they put, they put Callum Wilson in, Harry Kane gets fit, and Callum Wilson stays in and Harry Kane sits on the bench. That's what happened with Jeff Hurst and Jimmy Greaves and the won the World Cup. The famous line, they think it's all over, it is now, which is a wonderful... I mean, you pray as a commentator or as a writer, please give me the opportunity to be so spontaneous, I'll go down the history of the game. And, and Wilson home did because fans ran on the pitch after England had scored the goal, was it over the line, was it not? Was it, would, it, would it count with VAR these days? I think, well, you would get it, it they wouldn't need VAR, would they, with goal line technology, they would, it would just beep on his watch, can you imagine that? We had a Ruski linesman, they would give it, and we've never been so thankful to the Russians in our life before. Uh, I think it was over the line. Um, but anyway, the, a couple of fans ran on the pitch when there was a breakaway. Moore played the ball to uh, Jeff Hurst and he powered through. And a couple of fans ran on the pitch. Wilson Holmes says, they think it's all over. That's why he's running the pitch. They think it's all over. And just as he said that, Hurst lashed it into the top corner and he said, it is now. Wonderful. Wilson Holmes, in the at the end of his career, came up and and commentated for time tees on North East matches at the end of his career as a commentator. 
but you're made for life when you have like Ronnie Radford was made for life by scoring for Hereford against Newcastle remembered for the rest of time Wilson Holmes remembered for that remark what was the ex- expectation on England going into that 1966 tournament was there an expectation they could go all the way there was an expectation that we wouldn't let ourselves down but there wasn't an expectation that we were going to win it and certainly when we started with a nil-nil draw on the opening day there was no expectation that grew as time went on and the funny thing is you know how things are different um, those days West Ham had three of that great England side in their club side and West Ham were never one of the top six were never a Liverpool or what Man City are now or Man United or anything but they had they had three of that great side uh, in the England eleven, uh, which was Amazing. I mean, and it, it, they had Bobby Moore, they had Jeff Hurst, and they had Martin Peters. And, of course, looking looking ahead to, to 2028, isn't it? They're looking at maybe having uh, St. James's Park as one of the, the host cities and it happening across Ireland yep. and, and, and the UK, which I'm just wondering, back in 1966, held in England, how much that home support helped? Oh, there's no question about that. Uh you can look at how many times the home nation wins the World Cup. I don't think it's going to happen this year, though. No, it isn't. I was going to say, there was an end to that sentence, Andrew. <laughs> you, the, you want to have a look at how many times the host nation wins the World Cup when it is hosted by a big nation. Argentina won in Argentina. Um, England won here, etc., <coughs> etc. Et if Qatar's going to do it, or the Saudis are going to do it, or... When America did it, it wasn't going to be won by America. Um, so, yes, it changes, but it, it's a massive, massive advantage. Mm. And just just, just final, final couple of questions on the 66 triumph. When that whistle goes, what was your, what was your reaction? Oh, I mean, the, the, the feeling is of pride and bursting out of your skin because... We'd, we won we won it twice. We won it in 90 minutes and then give away an equaliser right into injury time that took it to extra time. So we had it won and that was a famous speech of Alf Ramsey who went on the pitch, got the England team together. He said, you've already won the World Cup. Now go out and win it again. Because in 90 minutes they'd won it. They just had to clear that ball and the whistle would have gone. But they didn't clear it. Uh, Germany put it in and we're in extra time and we had to win it again in extra time and in terms of the standout player you've mentioned if you played for, for West Ham you know Bobby Moore the, the captain I mean if, if you could name one England player who stood out for you above all else during that tournament who would it be? Bobby Chong uh, a lot of people would say Bobby Moore and you can say Bobby Moore because he was elegant personified at the back and so cool and his range of passing was wonderful but I am biased. Bobby Charlton was a, a, a Jody, is a Jody. I am biased, and, and B, I love elegance. I love elegance on a football field, and Bobby oozed it. Bobby was Bobby played like in a lot of ways like Beardsley. He was both a striker that could score goals and a midfield creator. He did both jobs in the way that for Newcastle United. Basically did both jobs. Different sort of player, but did both jobs and comfortable on the ball. Uh, <coughs> I mean, it was a wonderful moment because 
not only did two brothers win the World Cup with England, but two lads out of Ashington won the World Cup with England. And they couldn't have been different. I mean, silky smooth, Bobby, silky smooth, wonderful finisher, Rolls-Royce. Um, Jackie, knobbly knees, peculiar gait, uh, chitty chitty bang bang. Dead car, as opposed to the Rolls-Royce. But very effective at what he did very effective not around or get as many caps as Bobby nowhere near it I mean Jack used to, honest, used to say and he was honest war kid could play I could stop people playing that was the difference between the two of them and of course we'll get on the Jack Charlton later on he is in your list uh, yeah. at, a, at another World Cup as he featured as manager we will move forward on to the second tournament you're going to speak about now. We fast forward four years to 1970 yeah. and Mexico. Yeah, and um, England were the defending champions, of course, having won it in 66. And a lot of people at that time in this country said that that squad was a better squad than the 66 squad, the 70 squad. Things had changed. The two fullbacks, Cohn and Wilson, had gone. Uh, Hunt, the Liverpool's support striker, had gone. Big Jack was in the squad for Mexico, but he wasn't in the team. He, he was the sort of backup, if you like. Uh, new players that weren't involved in 66, like Terry Cooper, Colin Bell, Alan Clark, the lead centre-forward, Alan Mulvey from Spurs, they were in the squad. It was a different squad. Um, and a lot of people thought that squad was... So there was great... There was perhaps more expectation on England going to Mexico because they were going as the world champions than there was prior to 66 starting. Just on that word expectation, and, and because it's been talked about again in the build-up to this, and it, it, mm. people always say that you know there's too much too much expectation placed on the shoulders of, of England by, by the press, more so the national press. The national press, yeah. Do you agree with that statement? Just give us an insight into, either way, whatever your answer is going to be, to what it was like back then. Was there this expectation pushed onto the the more the, the more the time went on, Andrew, I'm talking about years, not so much 66 and 70, but years after that. Um, papers, particularly the Sun, the way it was in those days when it was the greatest selling newspaper and set trends and didn't play with barriers. There was no barriers. Nothing was off the table. Anything could be done. Uh, it always made me smile because they, before the tournament, it was England some side, the golden generation when you get up to Lampard and in, in, in Beckham and uh, Gerard and the golden generation. The build-up to the tournament was let's get the flags out, get the bunting out, Etc. Uh, Etc. Et England's going to win. What? And they were souped it up. There's such. It was a fever pitch. All the flags were coming out of houses and uh, on lampposts, etc. And then when England got knocked out, as they inevitably did, they were slaughtered. There's deadbeats that have let the country down, etc. Etc. And it was so predictable. We're going to win it before we start, and then we're a bunch of deadbeats once we get out, whatever stage we get out at. And that became the norm. It wasn't around 66 and 70 because we were quite new to it. We'd won my first World Cup. 70, there was great expectation. But there wasn't a backlash to us losing in 70 um, because, and we lost very controversially, 
um, which I'll come to in a minute. We, the most wonderful thing for me, we happened, we were in a group where stuck in Guadalajara, which was in the north of Mexico. And we were in the same group as Brazil. Now, I loved that because I meant I was going to see Brazil all the time. It wasn't so good for England because I meant that I'd play Brazil. Um, but the incredible thing is Brazil went on to win the cup, of course. And the incredible thing was I saw every game Brazil played towards winning the title because, apart from the quarterfinal. When I was with England, West Germany and Lyon and they played their quarterfinal. But all the group games, because we were both in the same group, and then once England were out, I latched on to Brazil. As you, had, you could pick the side you wanted to follow. Uh, and I and the office left it up to me because I had the mood out there of where they, and I picked Brazil. Um, but, I mean, without a shadow of doubt, to this day, and I don't like to dwell in the past because you've got to move with the times, but to this day, that is the best footballing side I have ever seen in my life, the 1970 Brazilian side. Um, it was built on the famous five, which was the forward line, the old-fashioned forward line, the front five, Jezino, Gerson, Tostar, Pelli and Revellino. They were the best, and that was the best team I have ever seen. They were staggering, and Pelli, well... Phew, just a different class. The amazing thing is, Tosh Tau, the centre forward on that side, was about five foot six and he had one eye. He was blind in one eye. Now, can you imagine trying to play football blind in one eye? It's quite uh, an achievement. Oh, it was a huge achievement for him and it was a huge achievement for Brazil because they redid all their tactics to get the best out of him. He had a wonderful touch and because he was small, he didn't play like the traditional English bulldog centre forward. He played before his time, I guess. You know, he played as a sort of false nine, get the ball in late. And he always, he, Radar told him where Pelly was. He just got it in, two feet, and played Pelly in. The, really, the baton was passed from the 66 winners to the 70 winners when we played Brazil in the group game. We lost 1-0. It was where Banks made that, it was called the save of the century from a Pele header. Would you agree with that label? Oh, yes. It was phenomenal. I tell you, went close to it afterwards and it sticks in my gullet, although he's a friend of mine. Jimmy Montgomery in the in the uh, 73 Cup final for Sunderland against uh, Leeds. Jimmy become a very good friend of mine. But he, his was a double. I mean, Banks went down and boom, and it was against Pele and it was in the World Cup. That's it, and it was sensational. Jimmy went down, saved, got up and went the other way and saved again when Sunderland beat Leeds 1-0. Uh, but yes, it was a, an unbelievable, uh, unbelievable save. England, just to finish off that time, England went out in the most controversial <coughs> way in their last eight game. They were playing West Germany. There was West and East Germany in those days. And there's all sorts of conspiracy theories there always are uh, Banks went down with food poisoning on the day of the game the world's number one goalkeeper Gordon Banks without a shadow of doubt he went down with food poisoning and Peter Benetti who was a Chelsea goalkeeper stood in for him now there's all, once we lost this game there's all sorts of uh, theories about 
him being nobbled by the Germans and he, his food was, he got food poisoning deliberately, etc., etc. I don't know, but he was out with food poisoning. The point is, England then went 2-0 up. They in the second half. Ramsey, who had been an absolute genius in 66, decided England's won this game. So he brought off Martin Peters and Bobby Charlton to rest them for the next round. We're 2-0 up. We lose 3-2. Uh, and, and Benetti, who uh, is standing in for Banks, is at fault to some degree on all three, and one of them from Beckenbauer, massively at fault. Did you think that England had had that game in the bag? When, so when them subs were made and you saw Charlton coming off, were you, were you, did you have one eye on the next on the next round? No, because it was... I'm not trying to be clever because Ramsey knew an awful lot more than I did, but no, I was fearsome. You bring Charlton off, it's 2-0, it's the Germans. I mean, the Germans historically with us would beat them in 66, but they are, they are, and have continued to be since, they are tough so-and-sos to beat. And I thought, you're doing it too early because, I mean, it went into extra time, etc., etc. But, you know, there's people that never played again after that tournament for England. You mentioned the controversies there, you know, the theories of, of, of food poisoning with Gordon Banks, um, which, of course, is one side of the, the story. But what was the reaction like after the game? Because Ramsey had made them substitutions, was he heavily criticised in the press for, for them? Or was it or was the focus on, well, you know, something may or may not have happened to, to Banks in the lead-up? Well, I, to a great extent, from what I remember... Um, and these days, the manager would be absolutely slaughtered and lose his job on the spot, virtually. Uh, I think we very quickly got on to a conspiracy theory that those dastardly Germans had stuck something in Gordon Banks' porridge. Uh, that became the, the big thing. But it was stunning. And we were living in the hotel in Guadalajara, the press hotel, um, and because it was the Germans and you know it, it wasn't that 66 and 70 wasn't that long after the the war etc etc so there was always the, the connotation that is unhealthy involved in the situation um, it was a blow it was a blow my only consolation was that with hindsight England wouldn't have won the, term, the tournament because Brazil were the best side ever well ever that seen. was where I was going to leave on that that question, having watched England play Brazil and then obviously watched Germany, you mentioned there that in in some people's view the England squad and the seventy squad was mm. was, was a better was squad better. than the sixty six. Yeah. Would did you agree with that? Maybe going into the tournament, but then when when you watched them take on Brazil and you saw them, Brazil was just a different class. You maybe thought, well, they might be good, but they're, we not, ran, they're not that. Nobody good. won Brazil as close as we did. Mm and they were the best side in the world ever in my humble opinion and in a lot of people's opinion they were good they were fortunate enough to see them live and I saw them every game bar one remember um, and we ran them closer than anybody did it was 1-0 Gisino scored the goal um, it would have been the perfect and justified final England v Brazil um, there's absolutely no question about that there's absolutely no question that we give it to uh, 
West Germany with a combination of the substitutions and the best goalkeeper in the world not playing. Um, but it was a crazy old tournament, you know, Mexico. I think it's the first tournament in the World Cup that had been held in that particular country, etc., etc. And Mexico, bless them, were totally unprepared for the tournament. Uh, I mean, I went over there and, and we had to fly into Mexico City and then go up to Guadalajara and I got to the press hotel in Guadalajara at about three in the morning and they give me the key to the room and I went upstairs to my room and here's a bloke in the corridor painting the door of my room which was hadn't been completed to put the hotel up for the World Cup and it's three in the morning he's painting the door into my room uh, and I'm supposed to go to bed and go to sleep in there they, when we went down to, to um, Mexico City after the Guadalajara group stages and the quarters and the semis, we flew down to Mexico City. And by the way, I flew in the... Can you imagine that these days? I flew in the same uh, plane which was open to the public as the full Brazilian squad flying down for the World Cup final. And Pele, the whole trip from Guadalajara to Mexico City, stood in the the... the stairwell there's the center part of the plane signing autographs and posing for photographs with people never got any seat at all because he was so the whole trip down there and when i got there the hotels had been double booked and i ended up sleeping on the floor of the hotel room the belfast telegraphs legendary reporter was malcolm brody the he was in our group of newspapers thompson newspapers in those days he was legendary Malcolm Brody, Belfast Telegraph. Uh, and he dealt with the Tommy Casty transfers and all the Newcastle transfers from Ireland. And I slept on the floor of his room in Mexico City to cover the final. So not a luxury that everyone maybe thinks no, it was. No, it um, wasn't. Just in a sentence or so, how good was Pelé? Oh, absolutely sensational. He could do absolutely anything he wanted. We've had wonderful players since and to prove that I'm not living in the past not only have we had Cruyff and Maradona and all them but if you go right up to today Messi and Ronaldo not the Messi and Ronaldo of 2022 but of say a couple of years back or three years back have got to be in that top six there's no question about that but for me Pelé is still the best player that the world has seen. It's 17 is scoring goals in the World Cup finals in Sweden. 17. And we think now, if, if a 17-year-old gets on the bench for a Newcastle United game and comes on the 89th minute, isn't it sensational? This fellow was scoring goals in the World Cup final at 17. Yeah, quite. I mean, quite the player. I, I thought your answer would be something along those mm. lines. Um, we're going to fast forward another four years to 1974. Yeah, I, I just want to touch on this in passing without going into it. You talk about, you know, expectation, etc., etc. 66, we win the World Cup. 70, we're one of the favourites to win the World Cup. Just go out to Germany because we'll mess up. 74, four years later, we don't even qualify. England didn't go to the 74 World Cup finals didn't qualify. Uh, the lovely thing is that the office still sent me. Um, and not only sent me, but says, 
why don't you take somebody with you? Uh, a Newcastle United player to do with you, because we haven't got England, so we want to have some interest in the World Cup. So you cover the World Cup with a Newcastle United player. And we, in 74, we just played in the Cup final against Liverpool. And I took John Tudor with me, who was Supermax partner. I took John Tudor with me to the 1974 World Cup and we were in Frankfurt and whatever, whatever, whatever. Uh, King for a day was his, was his, and he wrote about that trip. King for a day was his autobiography, which came out years later after he finished playing. And quite surprisingly, one of his chapters focused on me taking them to the 74 World Cup and how it was eye-opening to, to look at course quarters. Because you, you went to training every day, you see. You didn't just see them play. You went to the training ground and watched him train every day. And, and he said it was one of the greatest experiences that he'd had. The side we followed, because there wasn't a, uh, in England, was Scotland. You imagine Scotland qualified and England didn't. Um, and there's a good quiz question here, which could be asked in World Cup season, which we're in now. Only one side was undefeated in the whole of the 1974 World Cup finals. And that side was Scotland. Can you believe that? They didn't qualify from the group, but they didn't lose one group game. They, they went out on goal difference. They only let in one goal. They went out on goal difference from the group stage, but they were the only unbeaten side even the sides that won it and that lost the game along the way in the, in the groups or whatever, the only unbeaten side, you can put that in your next quiz at your dad's pub, nobody will get the answer to that, that it was Scotland. They, they started off playing Zaire in Dortmund, 1-2-0. Second game, they played Brazil in Frankfurt, Scotland, drew 0-0. The third game, they played Yugoslavia, country that doesn't exist now, drew 1-1. So they had two draws in a win. They only let in one goal and they got knocked out on goal difference. They had a good squad in fairness to them. Billy Bremner, Peter Loma, Joe Jordan used to bend iron bars in his teeth. He, the, the toughest centre forward you can imagine. Davy Hay, uh, Dennis Law and da a young Dalgalish was in that squad. So they had good players mm. in those days. They had good players, but it was a it was a joy to be there with with John after the, the sadness of the FA Cup final, of course. Um, just to, on, <laughs> just, just to finish one last thing because we've got to have a bit of fun. The Scots are always wacky as a fruitcake uh, in those days. The international side, though, there's always controversy, and that sounds quite dull. You know, they never lost. But they never won. They went out of the group stage, couple of draws, only let in one goal, only scored three goals. You know, well, yon, 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 not with Scotland. In the build-up, they went to logs on the coast in the west. To that's where they set up their camp for the build-up. And uh, after the, William and the manager decided that he would give uh, the players a night off. Because, you know, you're living claustrophobic and you're going to go out to the World Cup and be claustrophobic, so you can have a night off. Now, that might be all right elsewhere, but with the jocks, that is like taking your life in your hands, the jocks of those days. Uh, 
Jimmy Johnson, who was one of the, the wingers, about three foot six in a Celtic, there was Willie Anderson on the other wing with Rangers, little dinky ball players, but Jimmy Johnson was a bit of a boy, uh, had a night out, got back from the night out, saw all these little worn boats on the side of the sea, uh, it logs, mm -hmm. decided that he would get a breath of fresh air and he would go out in the, in the worn boat have a breath of nice fresh air at night. Got in the warm boat, a player, another player pushed him off, off he went. Only trouble is, after he set off, he realised there was no oars in the warm boat. There was just a warm boat. And it started drifting out and there was padding on. The players had to rush back and tell Willie Oman. They got the Coast Guard out. The Coast Guard had to go out and rescue him in this in this rudderless, oarless boat out on the sea. Um, and of course it made sensational headlines, in well, all over the world, but in Scotland in particular. And um, the funny thing is, w Jimmy Johnson was one of the star star players of, of Scotland and, and of Celtic. The funny thing is, and nobody ever asked William this question as far as I know, Jimmy Johnson never played at all in Germany at, in the World Cup finals. He was in the squad, but he, he never got on the field. He never was picked in the starting lineup. Now, I wonder if that was Willie's revenge for all the headlines that he got beforehand. But uh, yes, he's, he was afloat and lost at sea temporarily. <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, that's quite the adventure. <laughs> Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Um... <laughs> We're going to go ahead now to 1986, and it, it, it's Mexico. It was a return to Mexico, wasn't it? For I, I, I imagine one can maybe predict the oh. the, the the player and uh, the two goals we're going to talk about. Yeah, the yeah. first goal. It, well, tell us the player, John. Yeah, the the player, of course, is Diego Maradona, and one of the in the top five in. Arguably, in some people's books, the best player in the world. Um, is it Pelle? Is it Maradona? Was it Cruyff? Was it Messi or Ronaldo? Or the other Ronaldo, who we'll come to in a minute. Um, but Diego Maradona, uh, the hand of God, goal against England. And, of course, against Bobby Robson's England. You've got to remember that. It was our beloved Sir Bob that was the England manager at the time. Um and I mean the England team, Peter Beardsley, in it, Subs, Waddle, and Barnes, John Barnes, who played for Newcastle, and also in the team with Peter Beardsley, Kenny Sanson, who played at Newcastle, as you well know, in later stages of his career. So there was a big Newcastle influence in that team that played that match. And all we ever hear is the hand of God goal. Of course we do. And Maradona called it cheating. Yes, he was cheating because he handled the ball in the net. Uh, but he's not the first to do that, nor the last to do that. And uh, VAR these days, or the referee in those days, or the linesmen are supposed to do something about it. And if they don't, they don't. But um, 
and he, it, it, the goalkeeper comes, Shilton, and he, he just pounded it over his top. And he ran away as if he'd scored, you know, like, and he, he evidently, we didn't know, but uh, he was shouting to the Argentinian players, come and mob me, come and mob me, because they won't give it otherwise, come and mob me. He shouted to his teammates, come and mob me, come and mob me, because he wanted to make certain mm. he was getting. And if, the, the England players were immediately going, handball. Now, if the Argentinian players had just turned around and waited, looked disinterested, the ref would have thought, well, it must be handball. So he was shouting, come and mob me, so that the goal was given, and of course it was given. What we do forget, though, Andrew, because we want to talk, it was 2-1, and yes, that's tight, and so it's a disgrace. But the goal he did score after that was quite sensational. And I've got a couple of questions about that, but just on the the hand of God, so a little bit before my time, I don't know what the angles on the the TV cameras were like, but when that goal goes in, you as a reporter, can you you instantly see that he's handled that, or are you thinking that's a great head out? You suspect that he's handled that, because... He's not tall. He was jumping against the goalkeeper who was trying to punch it. Goalkeeper had his, his fist in the air, trying to punch it. Maradona's not tall. He jumps with his hand in the air, the same as the goalkeeper had his hand in his air, and it flicks in. Now, I was immediately suspicious, but of course you don't get a second look at it, a third look at it like you would today on the cameras. I was immediately suspicious. The England players, Shilton the goalkeeper and the outfield players, immediately turned around to the ref, which gives you an indication that there's, there's something wrong. Um, it was extremely suspicious. How much did that incident and the result as well going out, how much did that hit Sir Bobby Robson? Oh, killed him. Uh, I mean, he takes defeat. Uh, an especially controversial defeat, and this just crucified. (coughs) Losing with England like that, losing with England four years later on a penalty shootout at Italia 90, and losing his Newcastle job, for me, was the three biggest downers for Bobby in all of his life, and he took all three horrendously badly and God bless him for that now we mentioned there that Maradona went on as well to score arguably one of the best ever goals at at a World Mm. Cup no danger just no danger just reflect back on it slalom round I mean he had low centre of gravity which is wonderful um, in terms of balance it's wonderful in terms of balance it's harder to be balanced if you're Jack Charlton or Dan Byrne or uh, Peter Crouch than it is if your little Maradona or your little Tony Green or Beardsley, who's not big. <coughs> the centre of gravity is terrific. He slalomed at pace with running at pace with the ball never leaving his laces. He didn't sort of, you often see somebody that that's dribbling with the ball, knock it in front of them and sprint after it and get there and knock it in front of them and sprint after it. He didn't knock it in front of him. It just stuck on the end of his toe and he slalomed past four players, one of whom was Peter Reid, who later become Sunderland manager, of course, uh, old Monkey Reid. Uh, he, he went past him and stuck it in the corner and he just had a go. Oh dear, oh dear. It doesn't make you like him anymore as a person. I haven't done the hand of God, but it makes you say, whew, 
Was there an element of bad defending? Or was it just pure genius? Well, it's bad defending if you go past four, but it's, it's let's be truthful, it's pure, poor genius. I mean, if you're manager of England, you're going to be saying to them four, this is not one here, could have even pulled them down. Just give them a kick. Sake, pull them down. You know, but that's with hindsight. Let's give credit. If we love attacking football, and we do, that's why we love Newcastle now, and that's why we love the entertainers, then let's not be miserly about great goals. And that was a great goal. And moving to 1994, 1990. years later, um, I mean, the first question I'm going to ask you, which squad was better? The one in 1990 or the one in 86? I think the 91 was better. Um, and it's the one where Gaza came into his own. Gaza blossomed into he wasn't the, in the 86 he was the he was the star man of Italia 90 and by Jove he was and and, and we had what'll be Adrian Gascoigne we're all in that Italia 90 which was absolutely terrific and what we've got to remember is that we got to the semi-finals and we only lost on penalties to make the final and that result, reaching the semi-final of the World Cup, was England's best result on foreign soil. Take out winning the World Cup here because it was England at home. On foreign soil, semi-final of the World Cup, Italia 90, is the best. It's been equaled by Southgate in the last tournament when we reached the semi-finals of the World Cup, but nobody's better at that. Nobody's better than that. So Bobby Robson has still got the record, along with Gareth Southgate, for England's best results-wise in the World Cup on foreign soil. And it was all about uh, Gaza. And am I right in thinking that England came into that tournament, Sir Bobby Robson more specifically came into that tournament under... I don't know if pressure is the right word, but there'd been a lot of talk about his future and there'd been fallouts with it with the press as well. So it wasn't, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at it, obviously I wasn't I wasn't even around then. So no, I've just done a little bit of research. Yeah, so yeah, for our younger yeah. listeners, just maybe give us a little bit of background to how England came into that tournament. Well, Bobby was lovable and, and was shrewd, but, as a, as a football manager, but he was a bit like Bob Paisley, who was the great manager at Liverpool. He'd come over more as a lovely, cuddly uncle in a fair isle jumper than he did in a astute brain because both Paisley and Robson talked basic language. They, they weren't hugely articulate. I think Eddie Howe talks magnificently as a manager with structure, etc., etc. They didn't, but they got the message over. So they were always open to a, a bit of criticism. Paisley killed up. I kept winning all the trophies for Liverpool. So, but Bob got it from time to time. And he got it here. And of course, the fact, the, this eccentricity, the fact he couldn't remember anybody's name and, you know, called them by every name that's possible by their own name, just lent itself to feeling this is a bit frivolous and the, the guy's a bit lightweight. And he was neither of those things. But tactically, they changed during the tournament. You know, they, they changed the system that we played uh, during the tournament. And he relied on two players who got so much history as part of us. Uh, one's Gaza, who we call daft as a bush, a famous expression which stuck. 
the Gaza was always known as daft as a bush and the other one was my little gem which is what he called Peter Beardsley um, and he called Peter <coughs> Beardsley that in 86 when he was playing with Lineker uh, as the front two and so he had daft as a bush and my little gem two unique players I mean you know when you look at world-class players the northeast have produced three of the first you, you, you would mention would be Bobby Charlton, Beardsley and Gascon. Mm. I mean, fantastic players all in their own right. Because you mentioned there the change of tactics because they didn't get off to the best of starts, did they, in that, in that tournament? No, uh, it, it's often been the case. England, that's why it was so amazing when we scored six against the van, regardless of the opposition. Newcastle, uh, England drew in 66, I think it was Uruguay, now teaching in their opening match, you know, and you're thinking... This has got to get better, and 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 the same happened with Bobby, um, and what Bobby did was allow them off the leash, and that mainly happened by putting his faith in in Gascoigne. I mean, handling Gaza was was a problem. He come with baggage. I mean, in that tournament, before the semi final, when we're playing. Uh, Argentina to go to the World Cup final he's got everybody tucked up in bed and all that and, uh, Bobby and he looks <coughs> he looks out the window and he has Gaza midnight he has Gaza playing tennis on a floodlit tennis court with a couple of Yanks and I mean the Yanks are playing each other. Gaza goes across. He can't sleep. He's hyperactive. He's walking the corridors. He's talking to the, the night porter. Then the night porter gets sick of him and goes away. And tells, What can I do now? Ooh, he sees the lights on. He goes across and talks. Can I join in? And he's playing tennis with the two with the, the two American punters out of the hotel, not football fans, after midnight on a floor. And he's playing in the semi final of the World Cup the other day. And. Uh, um, no wonder he called him daft as a bush uh, and he couldn't you couldn't stop Gaza saw the bus lashed round the back lashed up the back stairs up to his room charged into his room he's sharing with the water dived straight into bed and he's got a tracksuit on and pulled the clothes up over him under his neck and said to him the bus will be up the bus will be up I'm asleep and his pawn was sweat because he's been playing golf and he's got a tracksuit on when when uh, when Bobby pulls back the sheet and Bobby says no you're not asleep I've just been watching you playing tennis and he pulled it and he got a tracksuit on he's but he is what he is the very famous picture mm. of that day of course is when he gets booked and that means he's going to miss the final if England get to the final and Lineker turning to Bobby and touching his eye and saying, keep an eye on him, he's, he's lost it, he's lost the plot. And of course he was due to take a penalty and didn't take a penalty because he, emotionally he was shredded. When it went to penalties, did you feel England were going to win it? No, no, I thought England weren't going to win it because they didn't in those days. And unfortunately, uh, we often provided the guys that didn't win it. Had they won it, would they have won the World Cup that year, do you think? Yes, I do. I do. I think they had enough to... If Gaza had also played in the final, you've got to bear in mind he was booked, so he wouldn't have done. Mm. But if the proper England side could have gone out with Gascoigne, they, they, they would have won it. Um, unfortunately, Gaza was due to take a penalty, didn't. Unfortunately, Chris Waddle did. 
Now, Chris Waddle could spin a ball onto a plate from 100 yards away and it would just drop dead on the spinning plate. That's the sort of quality he had. But spot kicks, under pressure, all this ability goes out the window. I reckon the, if Neil Armstrong had been sitting on the moon that night, he would have been knocked off it by the football kick by by uh, Waddle because it went so high in, into the into the sky and we were out. That that happens in football, unfortunately. So we're gonna go on to 1994 now, where the World Cup headed to the United States. And it was a bit of a farce, you know, with the all the opening ceremony, goals falling over, Diana Ross singing. Um, and England, John, weren't there? Yeah, yeah. The Republic of Ireland were. Uh, uh, England weren't, that's absolutely right. Again, I thought that would probably mean that I wouldn't be gone, like in 74, and they sent me with John Tudor to watch Scotland. When England failed to qualify in 94, I thought, that's me, Kybush, and I wanted to go... Well, apart from always wanting to go, it was in America. And it was inevitable that America were going to get the World Cup. They had the Olympics around the same time, two years apart. Um, and you knew America, the land of showbiz, it's going, they're going to do the twirly-whirly and you're going to get all that. And uh, I was pretty convinced and pretty sick that England weren't there. Then all of a sudden the office said to me, uh, well, what's, what's the matter with you? There's a jury managing a, a side out there, the Republic of Ireland, the jury, uh, Jack John, who won the World Cup with England, and his, you remember his mission, go with him. And I thought, oh, that'll do for me, that will do for me. So I went with Big Jack. Um, and he's a one-off, he's a total and utter one-off. We, we pitched up in Florida, the low war plane in New York, when I say we, I mean the Republic of Ireland, but Jackson and me in tow, uh, were pitched up in Florida. And um, for the whole of the trip, when the Republic were there, they eventually departed, of course, I would, just before dinner every night, I would be in the bar, having one snifter before I had the dinner, gin tonic. One gin tonic, sit down for a dinner. And I'd be standing up at the bar, and I would hear the door burst open behind me, and a voice would come through. We Gibbo, how are you doing, son? Mine's a Guinness, gives a fag. And every night, because I smoked then and he smoked then, he wanted a pint of Guinness, and he, he wanted a, a cigarette off me, gives a fag. And I, I used to say to him, hey, listen, pal, you're in the fortune. I'm a little lad from the Chronicle on X's and I'm lucky to have a bed because I'm on X's, like, uh, you know. You're manager of the Republic of Ireland with all the money you've got. Do you think it's your turn to get the drinks in night? He'd say, nah, son, you're all right, but if you want a story, say it's in the morning. And he would give us a story, so it was six and two threes. Uh, but I loved him to death, Big Jack. He was as wacky as it's possible to be. I remember when he come back, I, I said to him, um, can I meet you to have a talk? for the Chronicle, do a big double-page spread about World Cup. That's it. He said, aye. He said, will, will this um, this meal be on the Chronicle? Like he said. I said, no, 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 they won't, they won't pay for the meal, Jack. He said, all right, then he says, we'll go to um, Ram Ramsden? Yeah, fish Harry, and Chips. Harry Ramsden's, yeah. Harry Ramsden. He said, we'll meet at the Metro Centre at Harry Ramsden's Fish and Chips. I said, all right. He says, aye, he says, the... Um, 
they sponsor me, he says. So we got these huge fish and chips and all the, in the cups of tea and all that, and it was for now because they were the sponsors of Jack. So <laughs> that was Jack. But the, the first game, it was amazing. We're in Florida. We're going to fly up to New York for the opening game of the World Cup. When we get up there, and I travel up on the private plane with the uh, Republic of Ireland team and the Irish reporters, when we get up there, under the tarmac, all these coppers come out on motorbikes to be outriders to take us from the um, airport in New York to the hotel. All the outriders look terrific. They actually come under the tarmac because we never had to go through uh, into the main building. We just come down the stairs, onto two coaches, outriders, and off we went. And all the outriders, of course, were Irish because were Irish guys, and evidently the, the, the coppers there were completely dominated by Irish coppers in New York. So the whole, and of course to them, what, taking the Republic of Ireland in for World Cup, like they loved it. And the giant stadium was packed with only two sets of supporters. Three quarters of it were Irishmen. Only they weren't Irish, of them were American, who whose ancestors must have come across in the potato uh, famine, because everybody claimed to be Irish. I mean, even presidents and Clinton and everybody in Kennedy's, they were all Irish. If you know, everybody was Irish. So everywhere we went, the whole three quarters of the stadium were green leprechauns, Irish, and the other quarter were Italian waiters from the 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 all the restaurants in New York, and that was the crowd. And stressing again, Italy, Syria, big, big, big time, and. The Republic beat them 1-0. And the reason why was Jack, was oh, as a manager, was wonderful defensively. He could stop you getting beat. He couldn't make you win off, uh, by playing attractive football. He didn't do that. If he was with the Republic of Ireland or he was manager of Sheffield Wednesday or Middlesbrough, or, as he was, he would organise you where you would get amazing results from time to time because you, you could organise you defensively. If you wanted an attacking team, like uh, Manchester United or England, where he was touted for, which he wouldn't have been good for, or at Newcastle United, where he only lasted a season because we want attacking managers, uh, then he wasn't the same manager. But he organised this. The goal was scored by Ray Houghton, who I only mention it because... Who made Ray Houghton's career? Supermac. When Supermac was manager of Fulham, Ray Houghton was thrown out by West Ham. Not good enough. Thrown out by West Ham. Supermac went and got him, took him to Fulham. He blossomed into some player at Fulham. He was bought by Liverpool. A Liverpool side that won everything and he became a superstar and he was a Republic of Ireland superstar. But the guy that put him on the road... It's a small world, isn't it? I was just about to say that. The guy that put him on the road was Supermac, and the man that he scored, the legendary, the greatest uh, Republic of Ireland goal was managed by Jack Charlton. There you go. Anyway, enough of that year, 1998. Yes, I mean, that's probably one of the first ones I remember. I remember watching the final Brazil-France. It was actually on my birthday. Um, and I really? remember On my birthday, and I remember also that Owen Wunder goal. I mean, what? I mean, you're going to go into, into a little bit of detail about 
about being there and watching it. I mean, it was a fantastic goal to skip past that many players and pop it into the, the back of the net in such a big game as well. Absolutely Never fantastic. did that for Newcastle, you know. No, no, <laughs> not quite. Not quite. He scored some, but not quite. Um, I mean, 1998 for me... Uh, falls into two parts, the start of it and the end of it, with the middle being sensational, the start of it, because we went into the tournament just having signed Francis centre-forward, who, and they were hot favourites to win the World Cup, and actually did. So I thought, blinking heck, we're going to have a World Cup winning centre-forward on our hands, and we did. Uh, only he wasn't as good as that. But, so I'm going out there, thinking this is going to be wonderful, seeing, uh, seeing Stefan give us play before he comes to Newcastle. The end of it was the controversy over Ronaldo in the final, which is still the biggest controversial controversy over one match ever. And in the middle of it was the sandwich of Mike alone. Um, but I won't go into give us too much. Uh, because we've done it on I was going to say that the last the last give was corner was the biggest flop wasn't it and Givosh was first list. yeah absolutely I was told I mean I was deflated because I thought I had my first story of the World Cup finals when I got there and sat next to Peter Story who was the great guy with West Ham and Portsmouth for, star finder and he operated out of France I said what about this Givosh and we've just signed him he says yeah He's Philip Noblis Gibble. He can't do this, 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 this. Well, not only did I think, oh dear, we've got a centre forward that's not going to send me to paradise, but I also haven't got a story. Because I can't find, I mean, the Chronicle are going to love me. The first story I sign is somebody telling the, all the Geordies back home that our oh, new World Cup centre forward's hopeless. So the story went out the windows as well. Um, I mean, that, you know, I talked about Jimmy Johnson up in Scotland, you know, in the boat. This story started with a bit of controversy as well with Gaza. If you remember, Gaza, with England were pre-tournament, were way doing things, and then I had to announce the squad. When Hoddle announced the squad, he got, they were abroad in a hotel, he got Gaza in and told him he wouldn't be in the squad, 98. Gaza was hitting trouble now in his personal life, you know. Um, and, he told, and he trashed the whole room. He was so upset. He trashed the whole with the hotel room when Hoddle told him he wasn't going to be picked, etc., etc., etc. But it started with that sort of controversy. The, the, looking at us, we went out to Argentina on penalties. Um, it's St. Etienne. Obviously, I was at the game, and this is the game you were talking about where uh, announces Mike Lone. The goals went Badastude, who's one of the greatest centre forwards I've ever seen. Uh, obviously, Argentinian, played in Serie A, was built like a centre forward should be built. Mobile, elegant, vicious, vicious shot like Shearer. He scored a penalty in six minutes. Alan Shearer scored a penalty for us in 10 minutes. And then Owen scored in 16. And then Zanetti equalised in 45 and uh, we lost on penalties. The own goal was sensational. He was only 18. He was only 18. Uh, we threw him in. What is there to lose? And it was a bit... It wasn't quite as good, but it was a bit like the goal of Maradona after the hand of God, where he sashayed through defenders 
And this wasn't any team, this was Argentina. For God's sake. I mean, uh, and scored the goal and ran away and what a talent. I remember the celebration. Oh, with with the hands out, yeah, yeah. I mean, what a player was on hand. The only trouble was, he was that player with Liverpool and by the time he come to us, he wasn't. Uh, And that was the the trouble. Um, But that game was famous, you know, not for undoing that, although that was to us, but Beckham got sent off in 47 minutes and we played from 47 minutes and with 10 off men. as well. For, I mean, and, it, I'm it not, was I'm, a sucker blow. Yeah, I'm not debating the fact he should have been sent off because it was, you know, he shouldn't have done it. But if you're going to get sent off for what, well, let's say it would have been serious foul player, wouldn't off the ball, he gets sent off. Give him a good whack. Don't do a little a little heel flick. The whole thing was just silly and, and showed how you can get suckered in by streetwise players and it was Diego Simone who was now the manager of Atletico Madrid managed uh, Trippier at Atletico Madrid he actually fouled Beckham pushed him in his back small of his back roughed him up from the back Beckham went down like a sack of coals would have got a free kick etc etc and that would have been it but because Beckham knew who had done it and knew he was a thug and he was standing next to him sort of saying to the referee, what did I do wrong, referee? He lashed out with his the back of his heel. And, of course, Simone went down as if he'd been felled by a, a, a log guy in the, and holding his face. He got tapped on the ankle by the outstretched boot of, of Beckham. But he was off. And the amazing thing, we lost that 4-3 on penalties. And you know how we kept saying we, we had Waddle in a... David Batty uh, missed the crucial kick there uh, which was brilliant Um, but back home it's hard to imagine now because Beckham has become something of an icon in the history of England in the football wise etc etc he was vilified after that he was sent death threats he was uh, because to all intents and purposes we went out the cup because we played with 10 men for all the second half about two minutes and it was all his fault and he was petty and he was stupid and so he was actually vilified and, and there had to be redemption to get to get him back on the, the right mm. page and now I mean the final tournament you're going to mention in a moment is 2002 in Japan England beat Argentina of course Beckham scored the penalty for that one and I remember thinking what a big moment that was for Beckham I remember thinking as well, what a big game this was because there's always been rivalry between Argentina and England in the World yep. Cups, but also more in the so, Falcon Islands as well. Of course, more so because of um, what happened in 98 and feeling a little hard done by. But sticking with 98 for now, you mentioned um, Ronaldo briefly in the controversy there. Just, just give us a little bit of um, oh, detail about that. that. It's the most sensational football <coughs> match that I've ever covered for events going on around it, uh, without a shadow of doubt. Now, this is before Cristiano Ronaldo. This was a different Ronaldo. This was the centre-forward... This is the proper Ronaldo. Yeah, oh, he, he was a proper player, all right. This is the centre-forward of Brazil who um, looked like Goofy. With, uh, he had a bald head, uh, big buck teeth, wonderful smile. And you always, he was one of those players, Andrew, when you saw him, you always knew that in retirement he'd become fat. 
and, and he did uh, because he, it, it was training that was just keeping him on the right side of big uh, and he always knew once that went out the window so would his waistline go north, south, east and west and it did but what a centre forward this was the guy who I might add I love all these links Ray Houghton was discovered by, uh, by Supermac and all this sort of thing this guy was put on the road to stardom by Bobby Robson. He was brought out of Holland, signed for Barcelona when Bobby was manager of Barcelona and made his huge impact in his first season where he really broke through to be the superstar that he was going to become confirmed uh, at Barcelona under Bobby Robson. And this was the guy. Now, the, the amazing thing is, Brazil are playing France in the final. Brazil or Brazil, everybody's favourites every four years. France are the hosts, uh, so it's like England in 66. Um, massive, massive final. The guy that's led the charge, Zinedine Zidane was leading the charge for uh, France. Givor certainly wasn't. Uh, and leading the charge for Brazil was Ronaldo. Got to the final... I got there early uh, in the Stade de France. First team sheet arrives 70 minutes before kickoff. 70 minutes before kickoff, handed round in the press box, team sheet. Look at the team sheet, there's no Ronaldo in the team or anywhere. He is not there at all. The panic is in the press box. I mean, this is the greatest player in the world. This is the guy that scored all the goals. This is the wonder star. This is the biggest thing that's around. And he's not even on the team sheet. Edmundo, a guy called Edmundo, is leading the line for Brazil. 70 minutes to the kickoff. No explanations come up to the press box. Nothing. That's your team sheet. Everybody, what is going on here? And... Um, as all sorts of, has he been carrying nursing an ankle injury that nobody knows about, that's been kept a secret? Has he got a tummy upset that, that nobody's known about being kept a secret? Their team didn't come out and warm up. The Brazilians didn't come out and warm up. So you're going, what on earth has is, is happened here? And half an hour later, without any explanation whatsoever, all the guys come up, with a new team sheet and give it to each one of us and Ronaldo's centre forward and Edmundo's nowhere. Now what? This is the biggest game in the world. In the biggest star in the world. It's 72 minutes. Is not in the team. And half an hour later is. Now what's been going and, and there's no way that somebody's made a little fault in producing the, because you don't and somebody that big they didn't warm up they came out for the game and you knew when they walked on the field they'd be beaten because you've never seen a bunch of decimated characters like the Brazilians and honestly I swear that Ronaldo didn't know where he was Ronaldo looked befuddled. He never got a kick. They, they obviously just stuck him out there in the mild hope that the ball come across and suddenly natural instinct will take over. Sean. Boom, goal, and we might win it. 
Uh, I mean, they were so poor Brazil. They were 2 0 down at half time against France. Never got a kick of the ball. Zinedine Zidane had scored two of them. Uh, Marcel Desailly, who played over here, of course, with, with Chelsea, was sent off in 68 minutes. So they, they're playing, Brazil are playing against 10 men. In the score, another goal, the third one, through Emmanuel Petit, the guy at um, Arsenal. Uh, I mean, it was, you couldn't believe what was happening. I'm not saying France wouldn't have won if they, we don't know. But Brazil didn't turn up and Ronaldo didn't turn up. Uh, there was no explanation. Eventually, the, the team doctor, a fella called uh, Toledo, explained the mystery, said that and the explanation he gave was that um, Ronaldo had been rushed to hospital over during the uh, early in the morning. He'd suffered a convulsion, rushed to hospital, etc., etc. Uh, eventually, he was, and therefore they went to the, the match without him and put the team sheet out without him. Uh, then all of a sudden, there was a message from the doctor back to the headquarters. They've given tests, he's okay, he's okay, one were on the way in a taxi to the to the ground. So he was put back in the team and um that was that. He we only found out some considerable time later from Roberto Carlos, the wonderful fullback, remember they scored all the brilliant goals, who was his roommate, that the pressure he's only he was only a young lad, Ronaldo, that the pressure got to him so much that he's in his first World Cup finals. The whole of the country, which has a history of the greatest nation in the world, wins World Cups left, right and centre from Pelé all the way upwards, that everybody was relying on him and him alone to score the goals. And it become too much for him. And evidently, he, was, he just lost his bottle, which is thoroughly understandable. I'm not having to go at the lad. He ended up crying in the room, and at four o'clock in the morning, you start being sick. And he was sick regularly, and he was rushed to hospital. And it was, and thank goodness the story ended up having a, a happy ending because that was horrendous for the guy. And between that final and the next final in Japan, 2002, the four years in between were hell for Ronaldo. Not because of what had happened to him in that final, but a succession of injuries. When you score goals as well as he does and as regularly as he does, and at the very top, you get clogged, you get stuck, you get people do anything to finish it. And he got kicked to death. And for two years, in that four years, he didn't play. And mm. It looked as if he would never play again at one stage and his career was over. Yeah. And they somehow resurrected him to play centre-forward uh, for Brazil in 2002 and in many ways I say looking at it from my point of view and it was the last World Cup that I physically travelled to for the Chronicle in what I want to have Japan so far we had just covered Sydney in 2000 for the Olympic Games and in 2002 I had Japan for the World Cup and it was the World Cup finals of redemption and it was redemption for David Beckham against Argentina and redemption for Ronaldo for what happened in the final and that for me is in a nutshell was what Japan 2002 was about mm. I mean I mentioned there you know England beating Argentina it was a penalty wasn't it fire Beckham and I just remember that that 
seemed a massive moment in in for for Beckham. It, it was. It was the redemption, as you you say Absolutely. there, John. Um, but again, I mean, again, England. You know, I don't think people went into that tournament expecting England no, to, they to didn't. really achieve. No, they, they didn't. We weren't going to go to Japan and um, you know break up any roots. It it just restored him in the eyes of the public. I mean, it was quite one of the most amazing things I've seen. You know, out there, uh, we were used long before your time, my friend. But we were used with Be- Beatlemania when Beatlemania first. Of course, we've had it since with pop stars, but when Beatlemania first hit this country, sensation, young girls crying everywhere, every, every, everywhere, Beatlemania. It was like that in Japan with David Beckham. Humble everywhere we went, because I was part of the also runs that travelled with England, everywhere we went, outside the team hotel, on coaches and everything. Hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of little girl fans. All girls, all for Beckham, squealing in the way they used to do for the Beatles. And this is for a footballer. George Best was adored, but not to this sort of manic way. And I mean, if anybody connected with England put their head outside the hotel, and that included me, you know, vague connection like that, not just players. Little girls would come rushing across in the, with presents, begging you in messages, begging you to give them to David. And I got, you know, the Gisha girl fans, the Gisha girls had. I got so many of those with written messages on them when you opened them up from the girl fans. So many of those. If I'd wafted them, knew I started Gale Force Win. I had so many in my bedroom. Because, of course, I didn't bother giving them to him to David because he wouldn't have been able to get in bed at night with him they would have been stacked up against the wall but it was quite staggering to see that it the sort of you know you know what squeaky voice and all this and he's all up there for to be hit at and everything stunning looking man but with the squeaky voice people wanting to bring him down people wanting to bring him down after the first Argentina but adored had this sort of following but press conferences he would do, and he's England skipper, and he's the world, he's a superstar, he's bigger than anybody you've ever seen, anybody, I mean, Harry Kane doesn't produce that sort of response abroad, you know, they, they Beckham did, because he was a pop star in football boots, and he would give separate press conferences and put himself out for, for the regional papers, like us, and he was a lovely, lovely, warm man. Of course, he suffered from his girlfriend being his girlfriend, being a big pop star, and some people didn't like Posh uh, Spice as much as they, they liked him, etc. And that was provoked by Ferguson, who definitely didn't like Mrs. Beckham because he thought uh, she, she, was leading, she was leading him into a showbiz life. Um, but uh, he was a lovely, lovely man. The, the great thing with Ronaldo, though, is um, he started... Yes, he had to reinvent his game a little bit because of his injuries. In the way that Alan Shearer reinvented his game at Newcastle because of his injuries, because he'd taken so many injuries um, and he reinvented the way he played in the later years. Uh, and uh, Ronaldo had it over here, but he kept scoring goals. I mean, I was in Yokohama for the final, I played Germany, 
Brazil won 2 0. Ronaldo scored them both. He got man of the match in the final. He scored eight goals in the tournament. He won the golden boot. He, w- he scored three more goals than anybody else in the tournament. Uh, Ronaldo. And um, he was an extra, extra special player. He was the original one. We've had great players who almost sound the same. We had Ronaldo, who was this one that played at Barcelona and in Inter Milan. We have Ronaldo, who played Manchester United and all the other clubs. And then we had Ronaldinho with another goofy teeth and this long hair, if you remember. And what a, what a wonderful player he was. Um, so there's been some great, great players. And I mean... The thing with Japan was that it was so clean and so organised and so modern. The bullet trains that ran, you couldn't hear the noise. And they, they just swayed on the track as you went around and did 100, 120 miles an hour. And you, the rickety old trains we had in England, you know, rattling and uh, three hours late you get into the into the central station or whatever it was a it was a different world but um, it was a different world just for when I arrived the first day I arrived in Japan I go up to my hotel room which is on the 12th floor 14th floor open the door walk in immaculate suite big notice on the bed what to do in case in the case of an emergency through an earthquake do not get under the bed because it'll collapse on you. Do this, do that, because they have earthquakes out there. The first note, I felt so reassured that I was going to enjoy my trip in no end. Like with it. I've never gone in and had a, a, a notice plonked right in the middle of my bed in English telling us what to do when there was an earthquake. Um, luckily, there wasn't, even when uh, Beckham scored the penalty against, um, against Argentina. But it's... It's been a privilege to be allowed to do the, all those at the World Cup, to do what I did with the Olympic Games, and to do what I've done with Newcastle United, which is not bad for a little lad from Benmore. Not at all. Uh, quick fire then. Take 1966 out of the, the equation. The best World Cup you've covered? Oh, that's a wonderful question. Um, because, I mean, I'd have to, to say from England's point of view, it would be... Bobby Robson, uh, Italia 90, not 86, the hand of God. Uh, from an overall point of view, it would be the one after 66, 70, because that Brazilian side was just blew me away and, and has remained top of the pops ever since. And that was a good England side as well. And just finally, this is going to be the killer question, Johnny. We thought the last question was a good question. This is going to be the killer question. England to win the World Cup or Newcastle to win the Premier League? Which one would you take? Absolutely not a shadow of doubt or a minute's hesitation. Newcastle United to win anything outside of the Northumberland Senior Cup ahead of England win the World Cup in my book. I'm a Geordie first and in England a second. My heart's totally with Newcastle United. They're what's keeping me going. I want to see this Newcastle squad wins something more than I want to see England win the World Cup. If I can be greedy and have both, that's fine. But England finished second in a two-horse race. There we have it. Maybe not such a tough question. Well, John, thank you very much for 
coming up in this episode of Keep Us Conan sharing your memories of the World Cup from down the decades. Thank you very much to you guys watching and listening. We appreciate it. It's been a bit of a long one, but we thought the it World Cup been. deserves the justice of uh, John's memories of, what was that, nearly 60, 60 years? 66, all the way up 50-odd years. There you go, see? Not just a great writer, but a great mathematician as well. Please remember <laughs> to hit that like and subscribe button through whichever platform you join us on. Head over to chroniclelive.co.uk to keep up to date with all the latest Newcastle United news.